Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. What it means to belong to a union. Well, how about this number? $1.3 million more in a lifetime. Today on the show, the life of Arlene Holt Baker, a retired union activist still fighting for workers, and the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO. Welcome to the Monday, February 27th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least six platforms, including... Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and Stitcher. Two guests on the show today. We're going to start things off with a dear old friend and a frequent contributor to this show we call America's Workforce, and that would be Arlene Holt-Baker. Arlene served as the AFL-CIO Executive Vice President from the years 2009 to 2013, and she's got quite a history In fact, she's going to talk about the time in her life when she was a young child. And uh, her mom said, JFK, John F. Kennedy, is coming to town. This was in Fort Worth, Texas. And her mom took her out of school and said, let's go see the president. She goes back to school hours later, and the president is assassinated. That was uh, pretty much the start of her activist career. And uh, we're going to chronicle her life and times in labor. She became an organizer for clerical employees for the city of Los Angeles. Then uh, when Lyndon Johnson was president, right after that day that Kennedy was assassinated, Arlene's first job was LBJ's Poverty Initiative. She was working after school for a buck 40 an hour, which was the minimum wage at the time. And with that buck 40 an hour, she made more than the $6 a day that her mom earned as a full-time domestic worker. How about that? Arlene began her work in the labor movement with AFSCME in Los Angeles. That was in 1972. She moved to the ranks of AFSCME as an organizer, international union rep, successful in helping to organize public sector workers in the state of California. Fast forward to 1995, she comes to the AFL-CIO as an executive assistant to Executive Vice President Linda Chavez-Thompson. 1998, she links up with Liz Schuler, And, of course, Liz is now the president of the AFL-CIO, and the two work together on a campaign to defeat the anti-worker California Proposition 226, which was designed to weaken the voices of union members in political campaigns. Let's see. Fast forward to 2007. Arlene was unanimously approved to fill out the term of Linda Chavez-Thompson, thus becoming the first African-American to be elected to one of the Federation's three highest offices. How about that? So we're going to talk about her journey, what impacted her, what she's doing today. She, she's not sitting around. In retirement. She's been retired for almost 10 years, but I'll tell you, she's still an activist. She loves the organizing that's going on, and she is one dynamic lady. Greg Regan will be joining us uh, later in the show. Greg's one of our regulars, and he heads the Transportation Trades Department 
of the AFL-CIO, ttd.org. And we're going to spend a bulk of the time on what happened in East Palestine, Ohio, with that train derailment, which is a political disaster right now. Everybody's blaming everybody else. But eventually the facts are going to come out. And Greg is very cautious on what he can say and what he cannot say. Now, I will tell you this, and I talked about this on the show, I believe it was last week or the week before, Greg sent a letter to the Federal Railroad Administration urging greater federal oversight of the rail operations in this country. He says, for years, freight rail workers have sounded the alarm about dangerous cost-cutting practices in the industry that put workers in the public in harm's way. Since the adoption of precision scheduled railroading, which goes back to 2015, and he'll talk more about that, derailments and incidents at rail yards have increased on several major railroads, while those same companies, well, they brought in record profits. And we'll get into some numbers there. Greg said, rail workers are the eyes and the ears of the system, yet worker perspectives about current and prospective safety incidents are not fully leveraged. We appreciate that the Federal Railroad Administration sponsors a voluntary program to enable employees to confidentially report close call safety incidents without fear of repercussion. Yet not one, not one of the seven major U.S. freight railroads voluntarily use that program. That's that's shameful. That is shameful. And then he talks about the recent derailment in East Palestine being a perfect example of the dangerous conditions that workers in the freight industry have been reporting for years. The companies want you to think that safety incidents are decreasing, but it's not. The rate of incidents per train mile and the rate of incidents at rail yards has actually increased at three of the four top freight railroads in the past several years. You know, I want to share with you for the next minute or two about an op-ed that I picked up recently from the L.A. Times about how the rail situation, the derailment in East Palestine, is related to national security. Now you're wondering, what are you you talking about? National security, that's about protecting the nation. Well, you know what? There's more than that. A secure food supply, for example, or energy supplies, public safety, or protection against environmental threats. Residents of East Palestine were drinking only bottled water, livestock and fish dying, possible health and environmental outcomes, though they remain unknown, are quite possibly dire. The rail desire was not the result of an external attack, no. And although the specific reasons for the accident are still under investigation, it's no stretch to imagine that it was a slow-moving, internally created disaster of neglected infrastructure, leaner staffing models, and watered-down safety requirements, a string of decisions favoring efficiency over safety, all resulting in the routing of hazardous cargo through places where people live. The implications of this disaster will no doubt unfold over decades, with invisible contamination hitting already vulnerable people and environments and lingering long after the cleanup crews leave. This disaster is not unique either, but of a piece with many other slow-moving disasters like 
the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, Jackson, Mississippi, the Deepwater Horizon and Taylor oil spills, or the countless other unnamed and underreported disasters that tend to strike communities with already high levels of poverty, substance abuse, and addiction. Pretty much says it all. We'll see what happens with the investigation in weeks and months to come. All right, now a brief look into the world of labor. This segment brought to you by Boyd Watterson Asset Management. You can find more at boydwatterson.com. Well, if you want to make a million more dollars over your lifetime, there's one solution. Real simple. Join a union. That's according to a new paper at Cornell University's International Labor Review. Actually, there were two researchers on this project. They examined the advantages of being part of a union throughout your entire career, of course. And this is what they found. We find that a person who spent the entirety of their career in a labor union were predicted to earn about a million dollars more over the course of their career compared to somebody who was never in a labor union. Now, to quantify the impact of unionization on lifetime earnings, they use what's called the Panel Study of Income Dynamics, which tracks several Americans every several years. The researchers zoomed in on men who would have been in their late 20s in the 1960s and 70s, and then they tracked their earnings through retirement as well as whether or not they were union members. Now, here's the result. $1.3 million premium for workers who spent their whole careers in unions, even though those workers were more likely to retire earlier. Workers who are never in a union, they were projected to earn about $2.1 million those in a union, $3.4 million. Do the math on that, you get the $1.3. Union members, as you probably know, make more than their non-union peers. In 2021, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, non-unionized workers made just 83% of unionized workers' wages. But the study shows the long-term effects of a career spent as a union member The data also comes, keep this in mind, after decades of American wealth becoming more and more concentrated at the top as union membership tumbled and continues to drop. The conclusion? All this research that has been done shows that unions are really important for inequality and that the demise of unions, I hate that word demise, but anyway, this is what they are basically saying here, The demise of unions is really important and an important contributor to this growth of economic inequality and economic polarization. Pretty fascinating stuff. Hats off to uh, Cornell University and their International Labor Review. Powerful information there. Powerful stuff there. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Arlene Holt-Baker, retired vice president of the AFL-CIO, coming up next. This is America's Workforce. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. 
That's LIUNA.org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the US, US, Canada, Canada and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steelworkers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. The United Auto Workers are one of the largest and most diverse unions in North America, with members in virtually every sector of the economy. Learn more about this proud sponsor of our program at UAW.org. Union members need to be heard. Reliable and convenient union voting has never been more important than it is now. Make voting easy for your membership by working with survey and ballot systems. SPS offers encrypted and monitored solutions that ensure your elections are accurate and accessible for every member through mail-in, online, and in-person voting. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com and take the next step in getting secure and auditable elections. Now... Back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And don't forget, you can check us out on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Real simple. That's AWF Union Podcast. AWF Union Podcast. Well, as we wind down Black History Month and approach Women's History Month for the month of March, I thought to myself the other day, who should we talk to? Well, the first person that came to my mind is someone we used to feature on this show many, many years ago. Her name is Arlene Holt-Baker. Arlene served as an AFL-CIO Executive Vice President from 2009 to 2013. And at that time, in 2013, she retired. But as those of you know, in unions, when you leave a union or retire from a union, you really don't retire. You stay active. Many stay active, especially if they're healthy. And Arlene fits that mold. Arlene Holt-Baker. Welcome back to America's Work. How are you doing in retirement, sister? Well, hello, Ed. It's wonderful to be with you. I am pleased to report that I am doing well. I good. have health. I have thanks to my union. I have a good retirement plan, and I'm able to pay it forward in the communities that I care so much about. And uh, that community is what, uh, just uh, outside the White House, Washington, D.C., is that right? (laughs) Yes, I live outside of, uh, I live in Washington, D.C., not far from the White House, right off of 16th Street. But I remain active after my retirement. I continue to serve on two boards that I care so much about. One is the Center for Community Change. I am the chair of that board. You may remember from the history uh, community change, and we've now changed. We were a center for community change, and we've since uh-huh. changed our name. But we were founded in 1968 after the assassination of Bobby Kennedy to continue his work and working in, with communities of color, particularly those who were struggling to find economic justice and fairness. And, and what's I, the other committee that you were involved and the in? Other, and the other board that I serve on is the Advancement Project Board, where our focus is around voting rights, something that is another issue that is very important to me. Mm-hmm. Very so important. So my advocacy continues. Good. Well, 
Frankly, I am not surprised. I'm not surprised at all. Let's um, let's go back to when you were growing up, and I, I know you spent a lot of time in California, but uh, grade school. Let's go back to uh, Fort Worth, Texas, and I thought it's kind of fascinating. Uh, later this year, it'll be the 60th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and I know you and your mom were so excited about that president, myself included, my mom included. And you had an opportunity. This is an incredible story. You had an opportunity to see him before the assassination. Can you uh, go back to that time? I will never forget that as long as uh, I have my memory. I was, I just turned um, 13, Ed. And my mom, we knew that the president was coming to Fort Worth, Texas first before going to Dallas. And then it was the Texas Hotel. So my mom said, we're going to go and see him. It was a school day. But she said, you will get more from being there. So I will write an excuse for your being late. But we're, you are going with me and we're going to hear the president of the United States. And I will never forget that morning. I remember it kind of being clouded and I was short, you know, being 13. I wasn't that tall and standing on my tiptoes to be able to see him. Uh, and the first lady, Jackie Kennedy, as they walked, came from the Texas hotel and they got on what it must have been, um, you know, the stand. I can't remember if it was a big uh, truck or if it was a stand. And he spoke, but I was just totally in awe of that because I was, you know, I was hopeful for the promise of what America could be for black folk, particularly because I was a little girl who had grown up black and white water fountains and made to believe by those outside of my family circle that I wasn't equal to. Uh, and I had placed hope there that things could change with this with President uh, Kennedy. And of course, uh, as we all know, what happened after he left Fort Worth, I they t- took the motorcade on to Dallas and I went to school to brag that I had been there to hear the president. But I didn't have bragging rights for very long because over the intercom, uh, came the message from the principal that uh, President Kennedy had been shot. Uh, and it was a hush that came over. And I'll never forget my teacher. I think it was Miss Denable at the Miss Denable. And we were in, uh, uh, and, and she just stopped. And, and you couldn't, what do you mean shot? We didn't even know what, you didn't understand it at all. And by that time I got to um, geography, uh, class, they came back on the intercom and announced that he had died at Parkland Hospital. And I tell you, Ed, whether it, the weather was or was just the darkness of the mood, it seemed as if everything went black. And that was one of the worst rides on that school bus returning to my house where you know, going to my mom where we just cried and cried. And I thought, you know, the world was going to come to an end, especially for us. 
And then five years later, more tragedy. Uh, <laughs> I read that your dad died in an automobile yeah. accident. That's 1968. We had the assassination right. of, After. you mentioned, Bobby Kennedy and then Martin Luther King. Yeah. So, and then nine, yeah, and then 1968, uh, I... My aunt had just had major surgery and had recovered from it. She lived in California. My aunt, Alan May, she was part of that migration group that left the South and went, went West. Uh, and my aunt was returning home, and she was flying back to California after her recovery. And she called. We weren't, you know, then people didn't, weren't glued to their televisions 24 hours a day. You didn't have a, one or two channels. And she called uh, on on the payphone from the airport to to tell my mom, turn on the radio. <laughs> you can tell when it was, right? Turn on the radio. Uh, Martin Luther King has just been shot and killed. And we turned it on. And then there we heard about Martin Luther King. We were already suffering from our own grief because my father, who was, you know, a, basically a day laborer, we were raised very, we were poor, but we had a lot of love, um, had died in March uh, 1968 in an automobile accident. So then there was Dr. You know, King, who had been assassinated. And I, again, just thinking, oh, my God, feeling that the world would come to end and would there ever be justice and just wanting to react. And I, I remember so vividly going on our front porch uh, and standing there and just screaming because I didn't know what else to do. I, I had no other way to express it and trying to understand why there was so much hate. Why did they hate us? So, Arlene, what you went through in the 60s, and I can reflect on that. I went through that same period, scratching my head, what is going on in the world? But these are events that shape you and, uh, and make you what you are today. Uh, talk to me about how you evolved into, I, I guess it was, a, an organizer at that time. Can you, uh, can you speak to that? Yeah. Well, I certainly had activism in terms of wanting to make a difference, particularly to change things for people of color coming from Fort Worth, Texas, where I had seen up front uh, so much segregation. I had been involved. Then I, when I went to University of Texas at Arlington, I was involved in the Black Student Union. I remember, I think I was the first person, a woman of color. It was the first magazine we had was called the Prism Magazine and writing this article about, you know, tokenism, that it's not enough that we are given positions of tokenism, but we actually have to be given positions that give us authority, uh, give us voice, give us influence. Uh, I then moved, you know, later to Los Angeles, where that same aunt who notified us about doc Dr. King being assassinated, I moved to Los Angeles. My brother was out there, he, a number of years older than me, and he was working for a labor union. And uh, I then found that AFSCME had, was offering positions. And I didn't go in as an organizer. I went into one of their administrative positions, uh, actually secretarial. And they were involved in organizing in the city of Los Angeles. Um, 
at the time, uh, clerical employees, because they had just gotten the law passed after Tom Bradley had become the mayor uh, to be able to organize uh, in the city of Los Angeles. And I saw that organizing there, that union that had been, my God, the union where Dr. King had been there with the sanitation workers who were fighting for their right to be heard and their right to be men. I thought, oh, my goodness, this is like going to organizing heaven (laughs) to try to change the world. And that's where I landed. Uh, And then I'll never forget, I will never forget this. When I came in to interview for the position with AFSCME, and they were placing, um, taking a picture down from the wall and putting a new one up. And the picture that they were taking down was of the previous secretary treasurer of AFSCME, who was Joe Ames, and they were replacing it with William Lucy, who had just been elected secretary treasurer of AFSCME. So, as I said, it was just unbelievable uh, that that's where I was able to land and and to work for for justice. Um, and I'll tell you this little bit. I, when I called, I got the job, you know, with AFSCME, and I called to tell my mother, you know, I was to tell her, oh, mom, I got this great job, I'm working for a union and all. And my mother was a domestic worker. Uh, my mother was still a domestic worker, and she worked for uh, this household at that they had uh, chicken farms farms in Fort Worth. And my mother went on this, oh, my God, you know, crowd, Arlene's got this job. And I'll never forget, she told me that when she told them, they said, well, you know, she's working for a union and she'll never work again after that. She'll, she'll, she'll never find another job because she's really? working for a union. I'll, you know, wow. in the somewhat threatening my mother. And then my attitude was, well, you know what? If you got to leave, you got to leave. Cause we'll figure out a way for you to survive, Mother. Arlene Holt Baker. She served as AFL CIO Executive Vice President from 2009 to 2013. What a journey she had. She'll talk about that next, right here on the special edition of America's Workforce. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferrans. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. Hire union musicians. Call Music Talent of Cleveland at 216-881-1802. Call Music Talent of Cleveland as your dependable source for professional musicians in Northeast Ohio. Union musicians add harmony to weddings, elegance to parties, and uplifting music for all events. Music Talent of Cleveland contracts solo and ensemble musicians as well as bands and orchestras for single engagements. So hire union musicians. Call Music Talent of Cleveland today. 216-881-1802. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at BoydWatterson.com. 
Back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And don't forget, you can check us out on at least six platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and Stitcher. And when you get an opportunity, just sign up, receive our shows on a regular basis, and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. If you like a show, share that show. We count the downloads. It's important for our sponsors. We want to grow the show in 2023. Let's go back to our live line. Rejoin Arlene Holt-Baker, who retired from the AFL-CIO, where she served as executive vice president from 2009 to 2013, 10 years ago. Still very active, as she indicated. Arlene, I want to talk about your, uh, your journey. You started with AFSME in the early 70s, and uh, then you gradually went up the ladder, but it took 35 years. It took 35 years, and that year was uh, 2007 when you were approved by a unanimous vote, I might add here, to fill out the term of Linda Chavez-Thompson, who was the executive vice president. That had to be a very pivotal moment for you in uh, in your journey. Can you uh, can you go back to that time for us? I can, but during that process, Ed, uh, that thirty five year process to become executive vice president of AFL CIO, uh, my tenure certainly was with AFSME, uh, becoming an, an organizer where we where I was, you know, very pleased to be able to be part of organizing the city of Los Angeles, part of uh, collective bargaining for pay equity in the city of Los Angeles, being part of that process, organizing University of California workers and California state workers, uh, becoming the vice chair of the California Democratic Party in 1993, and then another history-making piece that I you know, when I reflect on it, it really was. It was the first uh, African-American to become a vice chair of of, uh, African-American to become vice chair of the Democratic Party, to be an officer at that high level of the Democratic Party. So the process was was built of organizing not only workers, but uh, political organizing. And then in 1995, um, I was asked, to, uh, and uh, quite frankly, asked by Jerry McEntee and John Sweeney uh, to consider coming to the AFL-CIO uh, and leaving my position as International Area Director for California for AFSCME uh, to become the executive assistant to uh, Linda Chavez-Thompson, who was uh going was to become and was elected the first executive vice president of the AFL-CIO. And what's important here for that 1995 period, that is when the AFL-CIO and the labor movement as a whole started to change because the new voice team that John Sweeney, Mitch Trumka, and Linda led was about opening up the labor movement reflective of the broad diversity of its members and reflective of the diversity that we must have if we Mm -hmm. were to continue to grow and strengthen to represent working people. And 19, uh, as you've indicated, in 2007, 
Linda decided that she was going to uh, step down from her term and take an early retirement. And at that point, John Sweeney asked me if I would fill out uh, the rest of Linda's term, which we had, I think it was two years on that term. And I agreed to do so. And then in 2009, I ran uh, with Rich Trumka, who was running for president then because John had decided to retire. And we had a new person added to our team, and that uh, was Liz Schuler uh, as secretary treasurer. And we know the history that was uh, later made there. So in 2009, I was part of that team. But in, when I decided to retire, in 2013, Ed, it was because I was going to be, I was going to soon become a grandmother, and I had spent so many years uh, in the labor movement. I raised my two children, certainly, but I wanted to be able to spend a little bit more time uh, with my grandchildren than I had been able to spend with my children, there and that's when I decided. And how many grandchildren do you have today, Arlene? Well, I have twin granddaughters, Logan and Mackenzie. They are uh, 11 years old. And would you be surprised that they're a little activist already? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I knew that was coming. That's great. That is so great. Uh, that's cool that you uh, bit, you met Liz Schuler. You met Liz Schuler in the late nineties, and here she becomes the first female to head the AFL CIO. Of course, she was picked by uh, Rich Trumka for Secretary Treasurer. Boy, Rich was a great guy. I was so shocked. I'm sure you as well when he suddenly passed away. There's is there anything that you could reflect on working with uh, Rich Trumka, Arlene? Well, it's no question. We know how tenacious Rich was and how he his dedication to empowering workers. Uh, he never backed down. That's the one thing I've said about Rich. Rich wouldn't back down from a fight when it came to workers. His, the vision that he had uh, in, when he asked Liz to join the team Uh, I think was a great vision because he saw, again, adding a younger person uh, to the team and trying to look ahead to the future of what we could be as a movement. I met Liz in California uh, in, I think it was around 1996, 98, when we were doing the campaign where they had tried to take away our rights as unions, the Proposition 226 campaign. Actually, yeah, I think it was in 1998, and that's when I first met Liz. Liz was on staff with the um, IBEW, and that was my first encounter with her uh, at that point. But, of course, I have, she's, I've, we've been teammates in, in the labor movement, uh, and I'm very proud of where... Liz is now heading the labor movement, a competent, capable woman who has voice and speaks the language of working people. And I am just as excited that uh, Fred Redmond 
is the secretary treasurer of the AFL-CIO. They make a wonderful team, and they represent uh, what American workers um, are all about. And most importantly for me, they understand workers, and they're not afraid to roll up their sleeves and to be engaged in conversations with them. So here we are, 2023, you're retired 10 years. You've seen a lot during that time, a lot. How do you feel? I mean, it sounds like you really are excited about what's happening in the AFL-CIO. What's got to make you even more excited? Young people organizing. We're seeing Starbucks. We're seeing retail. We're seeing uh, Amazon. It's all happening. you got to feel pretty darn good about that, Arlene Holt-Baker. I am so excited about these young people. Uh, Amazon, Starbucks, you've lifted it up. But this is what excites you. You hear the statistics now where they tell us that I think it's about 70%, uh, nearly 70% of workers support unions today. I mean, that is a wonderful statistic. But this is when you know what's real. And I'll give you my own example of it that just excited me to know Ian. Uh, I am healthy, but sometimes, you know, you got to go work on stuff. So I went to a physical therapist and this young woman, uh, you know, they ask you, what do you do? And I told her, you know, retired and so forth. And from where the AFLCR. And she says to me, oh, she says, "I, I think that's great. Do you know more young people care about being organized today? And she says, I think it's over 68%. And I almost fell off the chair. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. Actually, when the chair was in the table, I almost fell. I said, are you kidding? I said, did you look at my background so you could tell me that? She said, no, I just was asking you. That's what's exciting. When unexpectedly you walk into a situation and a young working physical therapist starts to tell you about young people being excited about unions and organizing. And that's when you know this is real. It's so, yeah. And I love the fact, I love the fact that Liz and Fred uh, have a vision for growing this movement, uh, And I love the fact that they have created a strategic organizing center at the AFL-CIO to be even more strategic and working with our affiliates to target and to organize uh, beyond where we are now. I am so glad I called you. (laughs) I really am. And thank you for sharing that story. That's awesome. We need more of that. I'm sure it's going to happen because we got the right team in place and we got the right guy in the White House. Uh, things are happening. National Labor Relations Board, it's all good. There's there's bumps in the road, let's be honest. I mean, that's that goes that's par for the course. But nonetheless, workers have been so united, more so now than ever before. Good stuff. Arlene, hold, I'm going to let you go back to retirement. I know you're involved in those communities, and please stay in touch with us, okay? I will, Ed. It was a pleasure speaking with you, 
and be well and let's continue to organize organize and never never back down all right we're going to take a quick break when we come back greg regan on behalf of the transportation trades department of the afl cio this is america's workforce more shows available at awfradio.com it takes layuna to keep america running Over 70,000 public employees are part of LIUNA, the Laborers International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with LIUNA. Find out what it takes for LIUNA to keep America running at LIUNA.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. The Heat and Frost Insulators and Allied Workers are proud to be a title sponsor for America's Workforce Radio. The Insulators Union is leading the way in the mechanical insulation industry, fire stopping, and infectious disease control. Regarded as North America's energy conservation specialist, these professionals are known for their professional work and dedication. You can learn more about the Insulators Union at insulators.org. America's Workforce appreciates our sponsor, the Columbus Central Ohio Building and Construction Trades Council, who represents more than 18,000 workers from 19 affiliated local unions and district councils. The AFL-CIO is a proud sponsor of America's Workforce Radio. United by efforts to raise wages, listeners to this show and workers all across America are beginning to turn a corner and drive the economic debate. The AFL-CIO is comprised of 12.5 million working people, but we stand with and fight for everyone who is working for a better life. For more information about our Raising Wages agenda, go to AFLCIO.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought you in part by the North Coast Labor Federation. Let's go to Washington, D.C. right now and join one of our longtime regulars. That would be Greg Regan on behalf of the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO, ttd.org for complete updates. And uh, Greg Regan, I was reading uh, what you uh, sent me to uh, plan for the show today, and this was about the uh, the Committee on Transportation and Infrastructure, the State of Transportation Infrastructure and Supply Chain Challenges. And this was testimony on February 1st. And in that testimony, you uh, you talked about what's been going on with our transportation infrastructure. And in a nutshell, we're seeing a lot of cutbacks. We're seeing a lot of profits being made by airlines, by trucking companies, certainly by rail. But when it comes to the workforce, it's chop, chop, chop. So two days later in East Palestine, Ohio, Well, we know the story, and it's getting national attention and will continue to get national attention because we're talking about a very toxic environment that was created because of a Norfolk Southern train that had, I believe, like 150 cars. So, Greg Regan, you know, you've been a pretty busy guy lately, haven't you? Yes, I have, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I know you're getting a lot of calls from uh, from media outlets and all that, but um, there this story is going to go on for a long time. You know that. I mean, and this is certainly not the first train derailment that's uh, going to come under scrutiny here. But why don't we 
revisit that testimony on what you talked about. And, and, and you've said this on the show many, many times. We've we got we to gotta take a good, hard look at what's going on here. So talk to me about that part first. Yeah, you know, we, we have pointed out now, and this is not just, not just on the first, but for the last several years, have pointed out the effects that the radical job cuts across the industry have had on safety culture in the railroad industry. Um, you know, we've seen the increase in accidents in train yards. We've seen uh, the rate of accidents increase. And, you know, this correlates pretty closely with the time frame when they've reduced their workforce by 30 percent. So I just I honestly, I just hope that we can start looking at this more sensibly and recognizing that having a workforce that's cut to the bone is not conducive to safety. And of course, I can't you know, we don't know at this point what the actual cause was. So you can't point your finger at any specific thing right now but uh you can talk to any real worker on the ground on the ground and they'll tell you uh that they feel it they feel the uh you know a decrease in the level of safety at the railroads greg i want you to talk about uh, precision scheduled railroading psr you and i have talked about this and i know some workers are speaking out and i don't know if it's uh, factual or not but some are blaming that because this is a practice that lines up cars in the order that they're supposed to be unloaded. I guess that's part of that. And perhaps safety concerns might have been left out of that. Why, why don't you explain what, what this uh, railroading, this PSR does? And I don't know, maybe it is, it is part of the problem here. Yeah, look, PSR is, is really, I mean, it's, it's precision. It's neither precise nor is it particularly scheduled. And as I've heard some of my colleagues say it's not exactly railroading the way they know it and what it really is it comes down to is that we they are trying to maximize their profits and lower their operating ratio uh, so certainly massive furloughs are part of that certainly reduction of equipment is part of that um, we've seen an emphasis on speeding up inspections um, <clears throat> so you know all of that stuff combined and when it combines into bad attendance policies and uh, lack of sick leave and things like that, that combine to have a workforce that is overworked and expected to be on call 24 seven. And that's just not, as I said, not conducive to um, the types of redundancy and safety protocols that are needed in an industry that is this dangerous. Yeah. You mentioned profits and I see in your testimony that boy, yeah, they've done been doing pretty good union Pacific for one in uh, 2022 $7 billion, that's a record. It's up from 6.5 the year before. CSX and Norfolk Southern, they also announced record profits. Uh, CSX, $4.17 billion. And Norfolk Southern, which is the, the carrier that derailed, uh, $4.8 billion. And the trend is pretty clear. I saw, I saw that in your testimony. Now, when you testify before Congress and all that, I'm just wondering, are they getting the message on this? Do they realize that, wait a minute, we're at a breaking point here? Do you, do you feel that might be happening or no? Uh, some do. Um, you know, but when I'm testifying in front of Congress, I mean, you know, there a lot of times you've got members of Congress who are looking to make their own political points. So, you know, they're not <laughs> – it's not a super uh, investigative and, and thoughtful conversation all the time. But – I will say I am um, hopeful, you know, if you're talking about the derailment that happened, um, I am hopeful that, you know, we, we actually got lucky this time 
because oftentimes when you have a, cat, a, a catastrophe like this, you know, unfortunately there are either deaths or serious injuries. We did not have that happen here. Um, you know, we're, it's going to be a long time before we know the, the environmental impacts, but we didn't have uh, a, a crash that, that resulted in, you know, many people dying. And oftentimes that is what it takes to get meaningful safety regulations done in transportation. And one example is the Colgan air crash in 2009. You know, that was the fourth uh, fatal accident in the previous, I, I think it was about seven years. They realized this was a problem. We got much better pilot training regulations in place. We got much better fatigue laws in place. And we haven't had a plane fall of the sky since in the United States. And we, mm -hmm. we've shown that that works. Um, but once again, that only happened. We spurred that action because of a catastrophe. And in this case, we have a high profile accident where fortunately nobody died. And so I hope that when we look at this afterwards and when we get the full results of the, of the investigation and we can look at the totality of the safety environment in the railroading industry, this is going to be that instant that spurs real reform and real safety improvements. Senator Sherrod Brown, who uh, has been very vigilant when it comes to workers' rights, he has spoken out about this and he said the federal law should require the railroads to tell states when hazardous chemicals um, are going to go through their community when they're going to pass through. And apparently, in the previous administration, according to Senator Brown, they weakened a lot of those rules and regulations. And obviously, you know the rail industry. They got a lot of bucks. They got some good lobbyists, and they probably weakened those rules. Any comment on that? I mean, do you know Do you know how much those rules have been, have been weakened that you know might have played a role in this? I don't know. Uh, we're still looking at all that. I mean, I, I, honestly, I know that there was a lot of lobbying. We, we've, we are constantly trying to um, prevent rollbacks to safety. I mean, we're constantly trying to push back on the industry when they want to waive brake inspections or track inspections and things like that. So it's not surprising to me that, that, that it wouldn't be surprising to me if, if some of those, that information was removed. But yeah. uh, I can't say for certain what exactly happened during the Trump years there. Well, we do know this. This was uh, a three-person crew, and and I know you and I have talked about uh, the push to to make them one-person crews. Now, <laughs> I guess we're lucky. First of all, the fact that we had three people that were running that train on that Friday night that, and you pointed out there, nobody died. Uh, obviously, you had toxic chemicals and all that. Some wildlife destroyed, and I know a lot of fish. Over three thousand fish they found uh, floating in the water, but probably if we had a one-person crew, which the rail industry would like to see, then that probably would have turned into uh, a fatality. Uh, I don't know. This is all speculation on, on behalf of this. But don't how in, in something like this, I mean, uh, you and I talked about that disaster in Quebec some years ago. How long will it take for an investigation to come up with some solid results on something like this? And in your opinion, what do you think? Um, well, the NTSB has, you know, usually they have 18 months or something to try to get their full extensive report done. Uh, that doesn't mean we won't know more before that final report. Uh, they've already okay. given us some information in terms of, you know, the, the axle bearing uh, that appeared to be at a critical overheating point before the derailment. So we will certainly know a little bit more that will help us, but 
you know, they're thorough and they should be because they got a lot yeah. of stuff to look at. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's other parts of the testimony uh, that you had on the uh, the first of this month, February first. Anything else you want to call? I see there's other like maritime, obviously of uh, air. I mean, we're dealing with a transportation infrastructure that needs obviously improvement in many areas. Anything else you'd like to touch on here while we have you? Yeah, look, I, I think that there is um, this is an exciting time for infrastructure and for this country with the amount of money that is starting to go out the door for improvements. Um, and I think that we are going to put I mean, a lot of the stuff goes directly towards improving our supply chain. A lot of things that will directly benefit the railroads, for example, if they're able to take advantage of it, you know, better grade crossing improvements, uh, better access to ports for railroads, um, you know, better uh, <clears throat> intermodal facilities, all that stuff that will should benefit our overall economy, in addition to improvements to our passenger systems. Um, the question is whether we're going to hold both our local governments accountable to do it the right way and whether private industry who uses all of these facilities, uh, whether they are going to do their part, too, to take full advantage of it and make and improve efficiency and modernize our whole system. Um, so that's that's where we're focused on in terms of implementing all this stuff. Uh, but it's it's exciting because we have an administration in place that understands how to do it the right way. Yeah, yeah. Well, he spoke about it as State of the Union address. He's been going around to various union halls around the country, talking to union brothers and sisters. I saw recently uh, President Biden spoke at the West Side Rail Yard. This is in New York City to talk about funding for the Hudson Tunnel Project, and which is going to come from the infrastructure law, which will improve reliability for the passengers. There's 200,000 passengers a day, a day who yeah. travel through that tunnel, and it, I, that's part of Amtrak, New Jersey Transit, and all that. So it, it's it's quite uh, quite fascinating to see what's going, what they're trying to get accomplished here and all of that. And I, I, there's more good things to happen when it comes to uh, projects like that around the country. You've got to be excited about that. Any testimony coming up that you want to call attention to that uh, that we should be aware of, Greg, before we leave here? Uh, no, I, nothing on my agenda so far. I think we are going to see a lot of aviation focus, though, um, because we do have an, the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, is, has to be reauthorized by the end of September. So uh, we're going to see a lot of focus on aviation-related issues. Okay, rightly so. Greg Regan, president of the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO, ttd.org, for complete updates. You take care, and uh, we'll talk in another month, okay? All right, thank you. And that'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Tomorrow, we'll check in with the vice president of the South Carolina AFL-CIO and our independent labor voice, Tom Buffenbarger. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce radio podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.